Hey, Susanna. Hey, Tevi. How you doing? Um, you know, it's another tough week, isn't it? Yes. Yes. This is another tough week. I guess we'll just get right into it. Yeah. Okay. On Monday, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even really know how to process this. Like, it's, I mean, the war in Afghanistan, I know that's something the U.S. has been involved in for a long time. I know that we, like, vilified the Taliban a lot, but I, I don't really know the truth of it. It's so hard to understand. We're so far removed from the conflict, from that culture, from that place, from the people. Yeah. Like, I just, it's so much to take in. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot to say that we're at the end of a 20-year war. I was a, I was a freshman at Bard College, um, you know, clutching literally a radio, uh, listening to evening radio reports and, like, communing with my, like, freshman college buddies uh, after 9-11 and uh, as we invaded Afghanistan. And so, yeah, this week is, uh, it's crazy to be back up here, to, like, be living back up here almost as a weird, like, bookend of this whole period of my own life. I mean, this is, this is a brutal end to a terrible 20-year war. Um, and speaking personally, just, just as Tavi, my heart goes out especially to every woman and girl who cannot escape the country. Uh, every woman and girl who experienced hope, who were promised an education, freedom from the oppression of Sharia law, who could finally begin to dream of a life of their own determination. My heart's broken, and it feels impossible to look away from the tragedies that my tax dollars have contributed to. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking moment. So if we were to take a brief survey of human-made tragedies through history, the majority of them would be tied to warfare. Yeah. War is one of the most inhuman and atrocious learned behaviors in our genetic lineage. And wait a minute. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Why is a mid-sized solar company in New York and Vermont doing an episode of their usually bright and cheery podcast about war? Uh, right? This is definitely a departure. I mean, adjacent, but like a departure. Oh, no, it's a, it's, it's a departure. But unfortunately, we're going to start to tie this together. Warfare and our environment have always been in a close relationship, whether we consciously recognize it or not. As humans, our minds tend to automatically jump to the human impacts of war, as they should. Lives lost, people displaced, cultures destroyed, power politics, nation building, trade, commerce, democracy, freedom. Well, and war is is usually about Earth, too, right? War is often about natural resources and how we're dividing them up, uh, whether that's land or the right to use it or oil or minerals or water. And when we go to war with each other, it's often about land and resources, the environment, yes, the Earth. Yes, yes. Many political scientists, many social scientists, uh, many current events. Like, every, like, there are so many people that would agree with you right there, Susanna. Like, we have more frequently gone to war over resources and natural resources than we have over ideologies. Right. Um, and that's that's telling. Yeah. And if we take a broader view, human warfare is, at least for now, <laughs> conducted on Earth and indeed has an incredible and terrible impact on our natural environment. So on this episode of The Solar Spill, we're going to discuss war, but we're not going to focus on the human suffering that war causes. There's going to be plenty of news sources that are better equipped to catalog that than us. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to pause and emphasize that that is the actual tragedy here is the is the human uh, component. We have another angle to offer, but it should 
in no way be construed as the main thing about this conflict. It's just another angle. Okay. Here we go. Let's go there. <laughs> Let's go. No intro music. Here we do. Here we go. Here we go. In pre-modern war, Assyrian and Roman records speak of sowing salt into the soil of the conquered, a brutal practice that prevented crops from ever growing back. And that sort of practice has matured into the idiom, salt the earth. Yeah, I feel like that's super common, kind of like burning down the infrastructure of the enemy. It's like make life harder for them to live, leave them with nothing. It's just a total waste of resources. But like for what? It's like for spite. Well, I mean, sure, yeah. Like we could we could tie it to spite. And unfortunately, there's probably a, a host of other reasons, you know, a geopolitical power plays and making sure someone always has the dominant resource. Like I think, again, to your point before, like a lot of this is about natural resource control. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of historians and a lot of political scientists will say that the majority of the wars fought in the 20th century have obliquely or directly been about controlling like oil controlling the means of powering our modern economy. Um, Rare metals as well, you know, rare resources, all of these things. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, spite plus horrible realities of learned behaviors of power politics. Zooming forward, look, it's impossible to discuss World War II, right? Without acknowledging the sudden and swift destruction caused by the dropping of of atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Temperatures instantly reached over 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit, exterminating people, plants, animals, and infrastructure, and rendering those areas uninhabitable for over a decade. That's so wild. It's so unbelievable that we did mm-hmm. that. Yep. Um, I mean, and that, that doesn't even mention the effects on the people, land, or animals of all the nuclear testing, mm-hmm. like in the South Pacific and elsewhere leading up to that moment, like the Bikini Islands, the Marshall Islands, the Johnson Atoll, all those places. Like. Yep. Totally impacted and destroyed simply by testing those things. Additionally, in World War II, marine ecosystems were damaged from wreckage from naval ships, which leaked oil into the water. Oil contamination in the Atlantic Ocean due to World War II shipwrecks is estimated at over 15 million tons. And, unfortunately, to this day, traces of oil can still be found that are attributed to those shipwrecks in the Atlantic Ocean. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, you think of oil spills as being, you know, like ExxonMobil in Alaska. You don't <laughs> think of them as being World War II ships. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Zoom forward just slightly a bit more. Our parents' generation lived through the deep anxiety of the Cold War and the very real possibility that two countries, two countries, had enough nuclear weapons to effectively end the capacity for human life on Earth. Nuclear winter. Yeah. <laughs> the destruction of oil wells in Kuwait during the Gulf War of 1990 through 1991, also caused widespread environmental contamination. Iraqi troops released about 11 million barrels of oil into the Persian Gulf. This affected approximately 1,290 kilometers of the region's coastline, notably in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Local fishing industries and many marine species such as turtles, whales, dugongs, and seabirds have been adversely affected for generations. And this is only a tiny sampling, a tiny fraction of the total environmental impacts of war through our human history. And of course, if we only examine history, we're looking at data sets which lack the sophistication of contemporary environmental science. Yeah, I mean, this is super interesting because uh, we don't really talk about the environmental impact of war. I, I don't think I learned about that in history class. And if we did talk about it, it was in the context, like you're saying, like power politics, like how the dominant player ruined the infrastructure of the weaker. 
And, yeah, and like, yeah, it's like we're talking about oil spills. We're not talking about oil spills that happened during the war. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of fascinating and it's like so troubling that we just like sweep all of that environmental degradation under the rug because yeah. it happened during a war. It's like we're not even reporting on it or talking about oh, it. Oh man, and I want I want I want our listeners to hold on to this. Because you're setting us up for a point I think we're going to come back to at the end of the episode. Like there's so much wrapped up in human warfare. You know, as a student of history and my my major was human rights, I recognize that what is that phrase? History is written by the victor, right? Like Yeah. Warfare is one of the key ways that nations have told their own stories and have solidified their identities against the other. It's brutal. It's horrifying. And it may be a part of the reason why organizations like a nation's military have been exempt from any of the conversation around, you know, effect on climate. Because mm. these are our heroes. These are our legends. These are our, like, we, 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 we endearingly called a human being on Earth, Stormin Norman Schwarzkopf, right? Stormin Norman, for his ability to go in and brutally destroy the enemy. We're not talking about depleted uranium rounds that were used against Iraqi soldiers and sometimes civilians. And like someone had the imagination to put depleted uranium in a projectile and fire at another human being. I'm not gonna talk about ethics or morality right now. I'm gonna talk about environmental impact, WTF. And we don't talk about it because these are our heroes. And this is the story we tell ourselves to to sleep well at night. We're fighting well, and for they freedom. protect us. Like our heroes, so much of of that ideology and that thinking is wrapped up in this idea of protection and right. honor. Right. Like I mean, pull any Hollywood film. Oh God. Off of the rack. Like it is honorable oh. to mercilessly destroy your enemies and protect like what is yours to right. own and right. steward. Right. And you just reminded me of one of the greatest anti-war poems that was ever written. It was in World War One. If you if you happen to be reading this, look up the poem Dolce de Coramete por Patria Amor. Like, it's honorable and right to die for one's country. Yeah. Beautiful poem, anti-war poem about yes. like, the horrors of trench warfare and mustard gas. Look, that's history. And I think it's important. As difficult as it is to examine tragedy more closely, we're about to look at Afghanistan. So yeah. this is like, I mean... Trigger warnings, if ever, right? Like, this is happening now. This is brutal. And as Susanna mentioned, the human component is among the most... Like, that's the real story here, people. But we are... <laughs> we're that mid-sized solar company. It's our mission to show up and to contextualize how climate is interwoven through all of this. And look, war is happening on Earth, and it's happening to Earth. So this is our angle. It's going to be tough. Um but we're going to do it. So here we go. And one important caveat, we are going to focus on the last 20 years. Like we understand and we acknowledge the long proposed oil pipeline through Afghanistan, which has been a historical motivation for domestic and international forces that are warring in and around the country, like seen. And like even before America's presence in the region, right? Like Russia was there. Uh, this pipeline has been proposed and reproposed like almost every decade. Um, and, you know, look at the description of the podcast because we've linked to uh, a, a bunch of papers and reports on the more recent war's effect on the regional environment. So just caveating, like, we know that bad has happened before America's 20-year war, but especially building off of, you know, attribution science and everything that we're learning, like, now, we want to look at this current because the data is better and it's a little bit more clear. I mean, but what what was this war about was it about oil though like the 20-year u.s war was that about stabilizing the region so we could maintain access to fossil fuels because i mean i feel like 
in my recollection of this 20 years ago, Bush started it in response to 9-11. It was about rooting out terrorists. But, like, was that actually what was going on? Yeah, it's interesting. I did a scrub. Um, You asked this question, you know, in the lead up to the recording. And I think it's a really good question because the story's changed now a couple of times. Absolutely the first priority, as Joe Biden mentioned in his address to the nation, the very first priority, as stated, was to go in and destabilize uh, al-Qaeda, which had been uh, sort of like hosted by or allowed to run rampant in Afghanistan by the Taliban, uh, who were the ruling party at the time. And what has been papered over successfully thus far has actually been a number of years of, uh, you know, I'm I'm using air quotes here, nation building. Uh, Nation building was a secondary goal of uh, America's presence in Afghanistan, and there are many traces of that over the last 20 years. Um, And nation building by and large, especially in a modern context, in a contemporary warfare context, Susanna, it's been about preparing a market. It's been about about preparing an international and formerly inaccessible market to America and her allies' interests, business interests, infrastructural interests, etc. We'll talk about a couple of those moments that did happen. Um, But again, we're going to focus on the environmental impact. I do not want to paper over what you just asked because it's really important. Like the cause of war, right? However, it's narrativized to the people that are paying for it, right? My taxes again. Uh, Yeah, it was about keeping us safe first. And then as we discovered that nation building would be harder than we thought, we kind of erased that part of the story. Got it. So, okay, here's something. In war... Most fighting forces are cleanly divided up between land, sea, and air. Hmm. How poetic. Yeah. A perfect framework for us to organize our thoughts around as we consider the environmental impacts. Okay. Let's start with land. Afghanistan's a majority desert country, huge stretches of arid land that are not suitable for farming. As such, vegetation throughout the country is a vital component of a healthy Afghan ecosystem. In the past 20 years of destabilization and migration that have been caused directly by these ongoing conflicts, it is estimated that Afghanistan has lost 30% of its farmlands and pastures to abandonment or degradation. As of 2018, which is the the best data set that I could find for this episode, it was estimated that only 6% of usable agricultural land in the country is currently under cultivation. In some cases, abandoned farmland can undergo natural succession and will often slowly return to a vegetated condition similar to its pre-agricultural state, which, in those best case scenarios, could contribute to fighting climate change, could like become the carbon traps and sequesters that we know work, right, and pull the carbon out of the air. But in Afghanistan, the real fear now is that the land will lie fallow and may be barren or grow only sparse weedy vegetation, which in turn can be an additional environmental liability. Okay, so you're saying because of the war, a lot of farmland was abandoned or disused. And in some cases, people there had worked really hard to turn the land into productive farmland. So when that's lost, it's not only that they are losing a major resource, farmland, but it's also decreasing the land's ability to sequester carbon. So it's kind of like a, a net negative impact on carbon emissions. Very well said. Yeah, that's a perfect summary. Exactly. Um, you're losing the active farmland and then it's it really, yeah, it, absolutely. It's like a double whammo effect. It's horrible. Okay. Um, Another adverse effect uh, on the land um, from our 20-year war has been the relative stability and wealth that was consolidated in and around the capital of Kabul. 
And what happened was, um, as the most critical and stable stronghold of American international forces, right, the city became the sort of beacon of like, this is where you're safest from fighting from the Taliban. Um, and so it went through actually a ridiculously fast urban expansion. And much of the surrounding land was claimed to expand the city. And unfortunately, a lot of that land was farmland. And while there hasn't yet been a study of the potential long-term effects of the shift that we can expect, we have decades of international climate data to show us that these changes uh, of like rapid urbanization and a decrease of farmland do uh, in most cases lead to some sort of shift in the dominant climactic and environmental factors. So we don't know what is going to happen, but we know something is about to happen over the coming decade. Because if you, right. yeah, exactly. It's like more carbon is produced in urban areas, obviously, um, more carbon outputs. Um, and then with the loss of farmland, there's going to be some sort of effect. Right, right. That makes sense. But to be fair, rapid urban expansion and loss of farmland to cities and developments, that happens outside of War II. Like sure. in our town, they just approved a 90 house development on when it used to be a farm that's just down the road from here. We're not in wartime, you know. So yeah. is there something more directly attributable to war as well? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's really this idea that, again, because this was at, at various points uh, a war of nation building, a lot of businesses and services were consolidated around Kabul as well that simply could not exist where they were less protected outside of the city walls or the city area. So, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, again, especially when we think about last week's episode, if we're in living in a model that assumes that infinite growth is possible, yeah, 90 house development will pop up anywhere with or without warfare. What was really dramatic was the incredible speed and the sort of lack of any um, uh, plan, not planning, planning is the wrong word. A lot of times in war, when a government is destabilized, all of the environmental protections, if any, that are set up go out the window because warfare is a very suspended, hopefully suspended state of living. And so a lot of the protections, a lot of the planning that would have gone into a more metered urban expansion were specifically brought on because people flooded to the region to serve these Americans and international folks that were only in that city to make money off of them to trade. All of a sudden these foreign exports were in Kabul they wanted to buy. And so the city just grew willy nilly without any sort of control. That's a wartime feature. Mm -hmm. That sort of desperate clinging to a westernized, you know, or safe place within a formerly unstable area. That's that's a wartime feature. That spike is a wartime uh, feature, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Um, and finally, the direct on on land, um, the this is, goes without saying, the direct impacts of war machines, chemicals, and explosives combined with a decades-long black market of illegal deforestation and timber sales, uh, timber sales have been linked to a cataclysmic level of deforestation across the country. So, as of 2018, less than two percent of the country is forested. Period. As of this year, there were some signs of hope with a renewed uh, government. This is the out bound government focus on reforestation, trying to push that 2% up to 3%. But it is, of course, unclear if this program is going to be a focus of the Taliban government. Right. Yes. Reforestation doesn't seem like it would be a huge priority for people just trying to gain control and yeah. bring peace and order. Right. I mean, if that is their objective. Yeah. yeah. Stated objective. And I mean, speaking of like land and soil, like have there been studies about what is in explosives? <laughs> like if a bomb drops or like a bullet is in the soil. Yeah. Obviously it destroys a lot and it, you know, it might be destroying the land, but like what, and of course people and animals and whatnot, but are there residues of those things that are carcinogenic or poisonous for a long time? Like, are those made of heavy metals? Yeah. Are they poisoning great question. Earth? No, great question. And, and unfortunately, the answer is we always know more about the last war. 
uh, and the weapons that were that were used before. Um, military hardware weapons, a lot of them are protected or privileged information. So the stuff that's being used on the cutting edge, let's say, uh, right. or st- technology, something's being used on the cutting edge, it's classified, we won't know for a long time. But when I mentioned earlier depleted uranium rounds, like that was a huge and horrible revelation, right, coming out of Iraq War II, was that international monitoring groups were like, why is the American military specifically like using depleted uranium bullets against, you know, this? it's, it's an asymmetrical level of force. And absolutely to your point, it is creating ground pollution, you know, radiated dust, which in the desert gets kicked back up into the air. Yeah. So we don't know yet um, if or which types of weapons were used. Uh, there was a history in Afghanistan of chemical warfare, ground chemical warfare, um, by the Soviet Union and by others. So, yeah, there's absolutely an assumption that there's going to be uh, a lot of bad ingredients in these weapons, these explosives, whatever. We won't know until we know, until if ever an international body can go in there uh, and see what the damage was and what chemicals were being used. Wow. I mean, that's really incredible because... I have to find the statistic. Maybe we can put it in the notes because I'm not going to be able to quote it right right now. But somebody shared with me um, that it was something about all the, all the, in every breath that you breathe, there's like so many particles. There's like mm-hmm. three million yeah, particles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, the way that the earth recycles all particles and the universe recycles all, all particles Every single breath that you take has been inside of, I can't remember what it is, but it's like millions of other people. Wow. Wow. The interconnectedness of it all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And here it is. It's like, you know, we're we're putting these terrible Mm -hmm. contaminants into one country. Like, do we think they're going to stay there? Oh, gosh, no. No. We'll get into air later, too, because like Afghanistan is particularly, it's like almost, it's, it's a total, you know, confluence of suck. They are often the the end point of a lot of international dust and pollution right. uh, from other countries. But we'll get back to that. Okay. So that was that was land. All right. right? That was like land. a brief overview of land. Deforestation, yeah. uh, you know, the, the end of all these pastures and, and agricultural uh, zones. Um, so that's land. Let's talk let's talk sea. Okay. All right. Let's so <laughs> Afghanistan's landlocked. So yeah, I was about to say, is there what sea are we yeah. talking about? No, it is not sea, but we're actually talking about rivers, right? Afghanistan features okay. ten river systems, which since around 1973 had eight hydroelectric plants providing irrigation canals and power to over a million hectares of land. Huge, right? And in many wars, in many wars, as with the American war in Afghanistan, key utilities are among the first targets that uh, are destroyed to disrupt enemy forces. And so in 2001, we destroyed the Kajaki Dam, which is about 100 miles north of Kandahar. So besides irrigation and electricity, the canal systems basically fell into disrepair with the destruction of that dam. Um, And that has led to increased threats of flood hazards hazards and drought, which we have documented since 2001. So we blew up this dam, we knocked out power, um, we knocked out their ability to irrigate those the, those chunks of land, and we knocked out all the canals that were being fed by it. So flooding and okay. drought. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, a major dam was destroyed, which disrupted infrastructure. But is I mean, is that necessarily bad for the environment, or is it the environment returning to the way it was before the dam? Well, let's connect back to your question about like what's in the bombs. Let's you know even ask ourselves like 
returning to a state before the dam probably didn't include like millions of little chunks of that dam after it was exploded yep. or yep. you know partially destroyed whatever so no we were not we were not returning it back to the way it was and you know what happens next often in these cases is probably worse than what came before you're right like yeah like we're not getting the thing is like you're not we're not getting into war to like return us to nature we get into war and and the tactics we use of war to just destroy right you know to like disarm and destroy um yeah if it was a if it was a you know an internationally observed to some sort of regulatory standard like deconstruction of a dam if our army corps of engineers went in there overnight and stealthily like deconstructed it in a sustainable way that would be one thing but no we obliterated you know we, we bombed it out this moment where we blew up the dam it kind of connects back to that nation building like mm-hmm. thing that we were we're not doing as a country because yeah, in the early so. yeah in the early years of the war we did in fact talk about and commit insane funds to the project of nation building and so we blew this dam up and then we basically fast-tracked the rebuilding of it in 2004 wait what yeah uh the, the wait so it got blown up in 2001 one. yeah and then three years later we're like better rebuild it the generals were like we need to win the hearts and minds of the kandahar people back and so we need to give them electricity what's between the lines here is a lot of the specialists were saying these are folks that like were not used to a life of electricity like while the dam was providing electricity to a subset of the population this wasn't like a hearts and minds thing a couple of the generals were like openly critical of the rebuild project and still signed on to it, which is like an additional tragedy on top mm. of all this. So in 2004, they drew up a temporary plan to like fast track this thing. Dude, they bought giant diesel fuel generators that could accelerate the construction or the reconstruction of this dam. And in the end, check this, we spent about $256 million over five years for the reconstruction of the dam and guess where the majority of that money went where diesel fuel wow diesel fuel hundred mm. or so 256 million dollars over five years the majority of it went to diesel fuel that's a lot of diesel fuel that's a lot of diesel fuel. that's a lot of carbon emissions so i'm not going to waste our audience's time talking about the environmental impact of gigantic diesel generators burning millions of dollars of fossil fuel over five years, but suffice to say, worse than a hydroelectric plant. Yeah. You know? Worse than a hydroelectric plant. For sure. Finally, air. Okay, (laughs) here we go, air. Air. We got the land, we got the sea, now air. This is going to be the hardest one to quantify, but there's a growing concern that with increased drought, land, Decreased agricultural land, land, and deforestation, land, (laughs) there will be an increased impact of the already devastating levels of transboundary air pollution from the Aral Sedimentary Basin, Iran, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan's industrial parks, which are near the Afghan border. Hmm. So read this. With less carbon sequestration, Mm -hmm. with more drought, there is a better chance that the known particulate pollution that comes in from these other countries is going to intensify and is going to be even worse for the natural ecosystem of, of uh, Afghanistan. Yeah. Beyond direct air pollution, right, in the form of CO2, there are also concerns about airborne pesticides that could be potentially absorbed into Afghanistan's already endangered soil. And finally, with increased drought, there is also the possibility that traces of the chemical weapons that remain in the soil, Afghan soil, from the Soviet invasion might get kicked up and recirculated back into the air, which could propose a severe danger to the humans, animals, and plants in the region. Okay, so because farmlands, forests, those are decreasing, air pollution is likely to increase, mm-hmm. 
And drought could also complicate chemical weapon residues in soil, potentially making those airborne again too. So kind of seems like air pollution is going to increase. Yeah. Okay, so they've lost farmland, they've lost forests, they've lost the dam. They're expecting more drought, more air pollution, more fossil fuel usage. Although World Bank actually says that the Afghanistan per capita carbon footprint is 0.2 metric tons per year. And if you compare that to the U.S., we're actually at 15.2 metric tons. So like... Yeah. I think that's fossil fuel usage, whatever. Yeah. Like they're hardly using anything. Well, exactly. It's largely due to the fact they're just, they're not an industrialized nation. They weren't, they never have been. Right. Uh, and largely those huge outputs come from industrialized nations such as ours. So yeah, like that was, <laughs> that was a lot, you know? And, and I think rather than being overwhelmed, let's just keep it focused on potential solutions, right? Yep. Look, with the new climate report that we discussed in our last episode, We're entering a new phase in the fight against climate change. The report holds world leaders to tasks and it outlines the grave threat to humanity's ability to survive ourselves on this planet. And like, it's mainly focusing on the economic model, right? Like this sort of model of constant economic growth and expansion cannot last, right? Right. The report really squarely takes aim at that. And the report also showed that we have the scientific tools to sort of laser focus in on the causes of environmental devastation. And by and large, the causes are the burning of fossil fuels, right? It's like one of the biggest contributors to climate change. It outlines a massive and necessary shift in the way we imagine the next 30 years of our lives on, on Earth playing out. And the dramatic changes to behavior that we need uh, to implement to be sure that we're, you know, the following 30 years aren't even worse than the ones that we're about to experience. So with that gravity, with those consequences, my sort of way of wrapping all of those together is that, you know, I believe that it behooves us to also examine the environmental impacts of war, not just economic growth. When we examine America's 20-year war in Afghanistan, look, we can see beyond a shadow of a doubt that there have been deep and terrible environmental impacts to the country's ecosystem. And when we dig a layer deeper, I found that the best estimate of U.S. military, military greenhouse gas emissions from 2001, when the war in Afghanistan began, through 2017, where this data set cut off, is that the U.S. military has emitted... 1,212 million metric tons of greenhouse gases. Um, that's, that's a lot. That's kind of incredible because, I mean, that's, if, if we assume, you know, World Bank is right and Americans have 15.2 metric tons per year as their carbon footprint, mm-hmm. that's the carbon footprint of 78 millions Americans. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, that's. That's basically Vermont, New York, California, and Florida combined. That's, I mean, it's 25% of the total. That's insane. Um, or if you put it in terms of Afghanistan, that's 6 billion Afghani carbon footprints. Wow. Which is a lot more, um, yeah. a lot, you know, that's, there's yeah, hardly. the American, yeah, exactly. Um, or 158 years oh of the current gosh. Afghani population and their current carbon footprints. Well. So, I mean, that's, that's an incredible amount of carbon emissions. Yeah. And so we know, we know that with every ton of greenhouse gas emitted, it's going to sort of rapidly deplete that remaining carbon budget uh, towards that 1.5 Celsius uh, temperature rise that we need uh, to prevent. And, you know, we need to take every possible measure to reduce those emissions, right, wherever they happen. 
So we know that industrialized nations produce a lot of carbon. We know that business is a focus of the ICC report. We also can now plainly observe that the waging of war and the aftermath of war can have horrible direct impacts on our environment and on the lives of the people, animals, and plants that are swept up in its wake. Yeah, I mean, even if we're just only thinking about the things that get destroyed and have to be rebuilt. I mean, that's that's an enormous amount of resources that yes. went into building those things the first time yep. and then rebuilding them the second time. Yes. And I mean, honestly, there's a lot of resources that also go into destroying them, right? Oh, yeah, wartime it's, production. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I like I don't want to be flippant or glib, but like, when you look at it just purely from the resources used kind of perspective, it's just incredibly wasteful to build these things twice and to you know, spend so much time and energy and resources destroying them. And that doesn't even take into account the human lives that are lost and the massive amounts of trauma that are inflicted on the people who survive. Like that's just purely from a resource perspective. It's so wasteful. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, where I find hope is really taking, you know, all the sort of progress of that, um, of that UN report. And then also taking a look back a couple episodes before when we started talking about the potential connection between the attribution science um, and what we were talking about where the international criminal court system is currently investigating a legal framework uh, for ecocide, right? To bring nations and NGOs into a position of responsibility for the ecological damages they cause. So, you know, potentially a compelling part of the solution to climate change could be to charge governments and their armies with ecological war crimes. That's really interesting. I mean, that's that's kind of a fascinating approach because I also, that makes me think, you know, is there a carbon tax in the near future? Ooh. If there is, how do militaries continue to function? I mean, oh if that's 25% of our, you know, national carbon footprint is the military, how do they survive that if there's a carbon tax on it? Or, I mean, are does that mean that militaries are somehow the ones who actually get out in front of electric technology because they need to power the war machine with clean energy, right? They like can't afford the carbon tax. I mean, that just it seems like such a contradictory idea. Mm-hmm. But really as clean energy becomes more mainstream, it's going to be harder and harder to maintain the ideas of creating an entirely better system. You yes. know, it's like more and more of the status quo is going to get involved and say, "Yes, let's keep doing everything we're doing now and we'll just power it with solar and wind." Right. You know, there's actually an article that I shared around our team this week. And I think we might do a future podcast about mm, it. Preview, preview future podcast. Um, but it was about how venture capitalists are now starting to really get behind funding clean tech again. And how it's strange because, you know, like our last podcast, we talked about how unbridled growth and capitalism, they're, they're so much at the center of this problem. And that, and that kind of thinking is so much at the center of the environmental crisis. Like, it's just such a strange place that we're now in to think that capitalism might actually be accelerating the change to clean energy, even though it is at the center of so many of the things that caused it in the first place. It's, yeah, it's, it's like a, yeah, it's such a strange place. It's like, we really have to think and just stay focused on transforming all of our systems to be more just. It's not just clean energy. Right. You know, it's not solely clean energy. It's like all of these systems need to change and adapt so that we're not putting ourselves just in the exact same position again. Yes. You know? Yes, I, I really like, first of all, full stop on like carbon taxing the army or like the, the militaries of the world is like, it's such an incredibly, like, it's like preposterously simple 
and it it feels achievable in some capacity because like so much of our national tax budget already goes to the military right right so it's like already completely out of scale of proportion to how we spend like if we only spent on schools and hospitals what we spend you know on our military spending like we would have a completely different society right yeah um but no i i i love that you're centering on something that you know Look, it, it seems it seems like a lot of this stuff feels impossible to like solve, especially when it comes to like the military and like the ide- ideas that we hold around the military. But I, I love that you can bring it right back down to earth, like carbon footprint, like a carbon tax on like twenty five percent of our national budget actually seems realistic to some capacity. Right, you know, and I think that that is the that's the important thing to remember with all this work is that like the war machine doesn't want to think you know it doesn't want you to think right. that it can be taken down that or it's changed. possible to change yeah exactly right right and, there's always know, a threat there's always something right. that's coming for you yeah yeah and so much of you know our national dialogue about the military is wrapped up in like protection and honor and the honorability and all of that and it's like just so deeply entrenched in our society and our thinking about what we need but is that true? Like, if yeah. we're going to rethink all of these systems and make them more just and make them more equitable and, you know, create a better future for us all, we have to rethink that stuff. We have to. I mean, honestly, look, if you look at the U.S. military from a different perspective, from a different context, yes, they are, like, the best trained, best equipped, like, warriors of in the world today, you know? They are also among the most brilliant and large-scale logistics company in the world. They right. are in the business of moving things and people around the planet safely, even where they don't belong or are not allowed, and conducting business, building things, destroying things, um, and changing and recreating infrastructure in their wake. We use this as a destructive and defensive force. I challenge all the brilliant minds younger than me Less than, you know, 50, 60 miles downstate of here, West Point, Mm -hmm. where the future commanders of the U.S. military are being trained and educated, not in grunt warfare, but in, like, higher education of, like, what does the future of command, what does the future of this military look like? I challenge each of you to do your job, push past your imagination of what today's military is, and start imagining what our role could be in a international peace making society like y'all build bridges the army corps of engineers is incredible incredible y'all can like build a, a structure like that overnight and you guys can imagine the solution you guys can be a part of, of, of imagining the solution we, we need the military to be a part of imagining the solution to climate change yeah i love that i love that inviting in of like people that we might typically exclude from doing this work but it's it's so true. It's like we need all of the the brightest and most creative people to start thinking about reimagining systems. It's not just clean energy and exactly. moving to clean energy and replicating all of the horrible systems of the fossil fuel industries. No. It's about yeah, Come clearing in. so collaborate. much of it out. Yeah. yeah. Come in, collaborate. Let's not stop with the I mean this look, this speaks to a large thing. Maybe we should do an episode on just the the sort of the held biases of the like formerly known as mm, green movement. Like yes. there's actually like a group of um, Catholic, uh, like yes, Catholics who are like right. fighting to like be more, to have more of a platform to talk about climate change. Cause they're like, no, we got to protect all of like God's creation. Like this is a part of our like thing. And y'all are just excluding us cause we're religious. You know, we got it. It's gotta be inclusive. And so military in 
greatest logistics company in the world. Come in. Yeah, I mean, I just keep thinking about all the people fleeing from Afghanistan as well, just to bring it back to them for a second. You know, just so terrified. They've got to get out of the way of this oppressive regime and just thinking, you know, like what are the systems we can rethink for them? Like what are... What are what's a radical change in our immigration system and in our asylum system that could actually support, uh, you know, people fleeing from from these really horrifying wars? Because, I mean, this stuff isn't going away, right? Like so much of climate change, what's going to happen? The planet is changing. Climate is changing. You know, and if if wars are fought over resources, what do we think is going to happen next as climate change no. Changes virtually all of our resources. And maybe this is one of our greatest arguments to like really turn the might and the intelligence of an apparatus as large as the U.S. military to the problem of climate change. Because, look, the U.N. report clearly said that if we cannot get ahead of this problem, this, this, this catastrophe of climate change, everyone, the most industrialized, the first world, the third world, and all those other horrible terms we've erected to differentiate ourselves from each other, Everyone will be facing mass migration events. Everyone will be pushed out of their homes and their natural environments will reject them and be inhospitable or uninhabitable for decades to come. So do we want to tap into our lowest self, the sort of xenophobic, you know, narratives that are used to like basically position the military as an answer to migration to say like, oh, you know, we got to fight these wars elsewhere. We got to keep our borders strong. We got to make sure that people, the only the people that are coming into this country, the people that we've invited in or that we want in for their resources, their intelligence, their labor. No, we got to look at this as a problem that says, look, our people, our domestic American population will be facing mass migration conditions that honestly, the army and the U.S. National Guard will have to facilitate decades from now, or there will be absolute, I mean, there's a change of society is coming. This is what the report says. So there's an incredible, these things are connected and they are solvable if we can, to use the words of the army, attack climate change. Mm. However, (laughs) this is just a note again, Tavi speaking personally, I hope we never Famous last words. I hope we never declare a war on climate because anytime America has declared a war on anything, that thing we're trying to stop gets bigger and mutates and gets even stronger. Right. Terrorism, poverty, drugs. Yep. Taliban's back. Poverty is definitely a crime in this country. And the Sackler family exists. Like we've lost right. everything we've declared war on. And there's some poetics in that too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the important thing to remember is that it is possible to do this work. It is yes. possible for the systems to change, even though the systems don't want us to change, right? Like the status quo is never going to say the status quo is changeable. That's not what it's about. You Nor know? will they make it easy. Right. So it'll, it, it often feels impossible and difficult, but it's not. And it's work we have to do. It is the work of our generation. It is the work of our time. And this is, I mean, what we're seeing happening in Afghanistan is just like the first breath of what's coming, right? Yes. So... Citizens of the world, this is yet another compelling reason to end, (laughs) as impossible as it sounds, to end the voracious appetite for warfare. And if you're looking to go solar, (laughs) we are indeed Sun Common. We're here in upstate New York and the capital district of New York and in Vermont. This is the Solar Spill. My name is Tavi. I'm Susanna. And we... We're really, really honored that you've given us this time.